0: And so Trump very explicitly contested this narrative of exceptionalism and this kind of American identity and supplanted it with an sort of what you in the literature would call ethnic nationalism.
1: Welcome to another episode of America Explained, podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy, and culture to an international audience. American exceptionalism is often defined as the idea that the United States has a special role to play in human history, and hence also a special role to play in international affairs. But the idea has had a rough few years, and a lot of that has had to do with President Donald Trump. Not only has Trump rejected many of the traditional ideas of American foreign policy which were based on American exceptionalism, his presidency has also seen an attack on America's domestic democracy, the very thing which has previously been seen as the source of America's exceptionalism. Most notably of all, his presidency ended without a peaceful transfer of power for the first time since the American Civil War. So in this episode, I really wanted to break down this idea, what is American exceptionalism? How has Trump deviated from it? And what do we learn about his presidency by viewing it through this frame? And can we expect the idea of exceptionalism to come roaring back now Trump is gone? In order to discuss these questions, I'm joined by one of the world's foremost experts on American exceptionalism, Hilda Restad from Bjorknes College in Norway. Hilda is the author of a great book on this topic and also recently published an article titled Whither the City on the Hill? Donald Trump, America First and American Exceptionalism. And you can find a link to read the article for free in the show notes. So hi Hilda, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
1: So I guess we should start at the beginning. What is American exceptionalism? How should we understand this concept?
0: First, Let me just say how excited I am to be able to talk about my research. It's like every (laughs) academic's dream. Um, So thank you for the invitation. No problem. Uh, (laughs) uh, American exceptionalism is a set of ideas, not a set of objective facts, which I will get back to explaining what what that means. Um, But I also want to say, before we start, because I get this question a lot, that it is not exceptional for countries to think that they are exceptional, right? So you sound British, Andy. <laughs>
1: I'm glad to hear it because I am.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so there have been other countries in world history, you know, the Ottoman Turks, 19th century Russia, Imperial Great Britain, uh, France's Mission Civilatrice. There are other powers in world history that have thought that they were somehow superior to others. And so I, before you get angry calls from your millions of listeners, it is not exceptional to think that you're exceptional in world history. It refers to a set of ideas that most Americans through American history have believed in. And it, in general, it means that the United States is somehow superior to other countries. It started out as this idea that the new world was very distinct from the old world, developing into this idea that it has a special and unique role to play in world history, and that the U.S. will somehow resist the laws of history, so it, it will rise to great power status, but it will never decline, like previous great powers have. It is important to note that when you if you read about American exceptionalism, or even if you just read American journalists, you will find different variations of this <clears throat> definition. But the idea is that because of the ideas, ideals and institutions that the United States was founded on, a kind of a Europe 2.0 version, it was mm-hmm. an upgraded version of the old world. Then it is sort of it has changed, it has varied, but the general idea through history is that there's something special and better about the United States and because of that, it should have an important role to play in the world as you said in your introduction. The other way of approaching American exceptionalism is to approach it as objective fact that not not that Americans view the United States as exceptional, but rather that the United States is exceptional. So I've been talking about the subjective definition, but the objective definition is the United States is more free, more religious liberty, uh, sort of go down the list of a set of observable, measurable fact and argue that the United States is Objectively, measurably uh, distinctive, and sort of secretly better (laughs) than other comparative countries, which I would argue is simply a a consequence of this exceptionalist identity. You've bought if if you if you're trying to measure how exceptional the US, you've bought into the identity of exceptionalism.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's not something that I think we find in the Netherlands or Norway. Right, that pollsters ask the public questions designed to find out how how exceptional the public think their countries are.
0: Yeah. And I have to say, Norwegians are, I mean, we're a small country, so this doesn't affect you guys a lot, but we are sort of obnoxiously proud (laughs) of our own country. I would say Norwegians are quite nationalist, but we don't do, so in the US, you know, Gallup and Pew Research will actually, like you say, routinely poll Americans on their, you know, adherence to American exceptionalism. And often they define it in their question wording as, you know, do you believe that the United States is the greatest greatest country in the world because (laughs) of its history and constitution? Uh, (laughs) And routinely Americans say, yes, we do believe that.
1: So another aspect of American exceptionalism that you've written about is this idea that the United States is somehow immune from the laws of history so if we look back over history, we find that nations rise and nations fall. And, you know, this has given rise to some interpretations of history that are essentially cyclical, that basically, you know, new, new powers will emerge, then they will fall and new ones will emerge in their place. But part of American exceptionalism is believing that the United States is somehow immune from this particular law of history.
0: Absolutely. And this is, I think, the end of the Cold War, really provided to most Americans actual evidence for this thesis, right? Because the United States had, it had taken over a continent. It had vanquished uh, several iterations of old world enemies in the first and the second world war. And then it had vanquished uh, the Soviet Union. So there was evidence was really piling up (laughs) that the United States really was this unique great power in world history that Because of its exceptional genius and how it was put together, because of what it was offering to the world in terms of ideas and leadership and culture, it really did have the ability to rise and not to fall. And, of course, I mean, the 90s, when you when you read American um, political scientists and others in the 90s, it is, you know, a a decade of triumphalism. Of course, Francis Fukuyama being the most obvious example here. I think summarizing what many Americans thought, which, which, which was that this was really the end of ideological history. There were no other competitors anymore. Fascism had failed. Communism had failed. And there were no other um, huge, influential, competing ideologies out there. And from now on, the the world would sort of slowly develop into liberal democracies in the American model. Um, and and I think that's also why you would think that the end of the Cold War is a kind of incident that is a shock to the system, and that very few people saw coming. And if there was ever a time to reevaluate the U.S. and the world, it would be. <clears throat> at, at that sort of historic moment. But instead, the end of the Cold War, just reaffirmed and strengthened the bipartisan consensus on US foreign policy between Republicans and Democrats. It was more of this, more US leadership, <laughs> more America in the world, the world loves us. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. And it, it, it's interesting how that moment of triumph in the Cold War was viewed as ratifying a particular approach to foreign policy. But actually, in many ways, that foreign policy approach that was ratified was was in some ways mythical right so there's this idea that the u.s has always done what it's done in international affairs and its achievements have been due to being a liberal superpower but of course there's actually great great elements of illiberality in in the history of American foreign policy, I mean, for instance, you know, Manifest Destiny, you know, conquering a continent was, you know, a profoundly expansionist, realist act to carry out. So this kind of brings us to the the, the role of exceptionalism in American foreign policy. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that relationship particularly, and and especially this point you make, which I think is really interesting, which is to say that for most of the post-war period... Um, exceptionalist views have been shared by pretty much everyone in the foreign policy debate in the U.S., even though they had profoundly different prescriptions for what American foreign policy should actually be. So the exceptionalist narrative can encompass a huge amount of variation in American foreign policy. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Yes. So the backstory, the origin story <laughs> <laughs> of post-war bipartisan consensus is that there is this sort of myth about American foreign policy in the 18th and 19th centuries as having been mostly isolationist because the United States wanted to be an exceptional exemplar to the world as a city upon a hill shining its example, but not involving itself in the world. And that that had led to the U.S. reacting too late to Nazi Germany and uh, putting itself in peril. That whole story is hugely problematic because, as you just said, the United States in the 19th century was extremely expansionist, aggressive, took over, you know, half a continent quite quickly. That's uh, quite a feat if you're isolationist. (laughs) But the idea developed that the United States had to be very interventionist, internationalist, uh, sort of aggressive in its approach, to international politics in order to create and defend a new world order, essentially, which is what today is sort of called the liberal world order, which is its own debate among political scientists, what that means, right? But the point is that the foreign policy elites in both parties after World War II agreed that the U.S. had now set up, you know, these institutions that were largely beneficial to the U.S. And it was important for the U.S. to play a very active role in defending them And thereby defending the American national interest. So the overall, you can say there was sort of grand strategy agreement, Um, although there was lots of differences uh, at sort of the policy level below that. So you would see much more often more unilateralist approaches from Republican presidents, somewhat more perhaps multilateral rhetoric from Democratic presidents. But. Both you would so you had a series of Democratic and Republican presidents from forty five to twenty sixteen that all agreed that the u s. should be a, a strong international leader, should support NATO, and although perhaps not always living up to <laughs> what it was saying, in rhetoric, creating this sort of uh, rhetorical framework of the u s. as the liberal, Hegemon and and saying to the degree that everyone was bored of hearing it how the US is fighting for certain ideals and which is why it's so different from its competitors like the Soviet Union that it's a, it's about not just American power and the dollar but also about certain ideals that you can trace all the way back to the American founding.
1: To America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. So I think that part of this idea that America's exceptional domestic institutions gave rise to a special role for it in the world was to do with the idea that it was a uniquely benevolent and idealist power. Americans around the time of the founding would often compare their own mission in the world to that of, for instance, the European monarchies who were seen as always fighting over territory always trying to use power to make themselves wealthy and and themselves powerful without having a mission to uplift humanity as a whole. Could you talk a little bit about that sense of mission in the post-war period and how exactly that manifested itself?
0: So this is, um, it's a complex discussion because I think you could argue that the U.S. in many ways had more enlightened goals in its foreign policy, but that to a degree, this belief in its own purity has both, it's blinded it to the negative consequences of its role in the world. And also sometimes green lit, terribly immoral actions for a greater good. And I think the way that you view the U.S. role in the world um, after World War II really depends on where in the world you're sitting. If you're sitting in Norway and the Netherlands, as we are, there's a convincing story to be told about how the U.S. has fought um, to keep uh, at least Western Europe uh, free um, and fought against worse options, worse competitors for uh, hegemons or great powers. But if you're sitting in Palestine or Iran or Guatemala or uh, large parts of Africa uh, or Vietnam, there, there is a different story to be told. And this idea that the United States is exceptional has, I think, really clouded the foreign policy debate in the U.S. and really prevented it from Having a more honest assessment of what role it played in the Cold War, what role it played after the Cold War, which is why I think for many, it was very refreshing when Barack Obama ran in 2008, because he, I think there's an argument to be made that some of the things we saw with Trump were foreshadowed by Obama in the sense that for the first time, Obama Lightly questioned some ingrained assumptions about U.S. foreign policy and the the role and the effect and the consequences that American power has in the world. It was a perfect moment for this because he came after what I would argue is a largely failed war on terror. That was one of those instances of U.S. foreign policy and power leading to worse outcomes. Partly because of this, I would argue, again, very strong belief in the Bush administration of of American exceptionalism and acting on quite ideological but flawed premises of what the U.S. should be in the Middle East and Central Asia. So Obama, for the first time... Uh, seemed to want to enter into a debate, being that he is sort of an academic soul, (laughs) (laughs) about the U.S. role in the world, and should we really be doing this? And perhaps when the U.S. intervenes militarily, it leads to worse outcomes down the road. And he was absolutely flayed by the Republican Party for this. I don't know if you guys, maybe I'm the only one who remembers this because this is what I do research on, but it was eight years of relentlessly attacking Barack Obama for not believing in American exceptionalism. And the argument went, because he doesn't, he can't be U.S. president, because he can't lead the U.S. internationally, because to be an American president, you have to believe in the United States exceptionalism, and therefore its expansive role in the world. This was it was eight years of the Republican Party consistently saying this, uh, which is why it's ironic.
1: <laughs> well, well when right.
0: Donald Trump comes along. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, yeah, right. This 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 segues really, really nicely to the next question, because I think that's such a good point you make, you know, that this American exceptionalism and also accepting America's. Uh, very interventionist role in the world, it's kind of a civic religion, it's kind of equivalent to patriotism, and if you quit, you can't question that without being called un-American, or you couldn't at least, but then, along comes Donald Trump, who very explicitly questions this, and he deviates from past presidents, every post-war American president, and embracing American exceptionalism, and I- So this is what you've recently written an an article about and and you explore some of the ways that he deviated and and how that affected his presidency. And you talk about three things. So one of them is economic protectionism, the second is ethnic nationalism, and the third is anti-interventionism. Could you tell us a little bit more about those three components of Trump's worldview and how they contradicted and clashed with this prior idea of exceptionalism?
0: Yes, I can. So um, for me, one one of the many reasons I thought Trump couldn't possibly be the Republican nominee (laughs) or the president was because he sort of explicitly went against um, this very bipartisanly accepted idea of American exceptionalism. And in fact, he did an interview in 2015 where he said, I don't I don't like the term. I I wouldn't use that word, which you would have thought in just a few years earlier would have been enough to prevent him from even entering the race, really. Um, and it's, I, ju- I just want to point out that I wasn't insane because all the other Republican nominees in 2016, like Marco Rubio, were obsessed with this idea of American exceptionalism and kept talking about it because they thought it was a winning strategy. But Trump correctly identified important competing strands and developments in American society, culture, uh, economics, and politics that led Lots of people to question, well, how exceptional are we given that everything is terrible? And should we really be spending all our money on other countries intervening, doing things with around the world that we're not doing for ourselves, which is not unlike what Obama was saying in 20, 2008, except much less Eloquently, but I and I want to I want to make sure to underscore that Obama never questioned the premise of American exceptionalism. And he is the president so far that has used that term the most. And he talked explicitly about it, probably because he kept getting attacked by by the GOP. So in his rhetoric, Obama never wavered from uh, a a typical U.S. presidential rhetoric on American exceptionalism, but questioned the extent to which the U.S. needs to be everywhere in the world all the time, whereas Trump uh, just rejected it wholesale first first time since 1945 a U.S. president has rejected this idea that the U.S. in fact is special and, and exceptional and from there it, once you sort of think about that it makes perfect sense that he chose America First as his slogan for his foreign policy platform because America First was an explicit competitor uh, to what became the bipartisan foreign policy consensus <clears throat> because it was the name of that lobbying committee that started in 1940 explicitly to lobby against U.S. intervention in World War II and then was revived. The most important part is that instead of this American exceptionalist idea of the United States as united in institutions, ideals and ideas, it was a very explicit ethno-cultural definition of what the United States is, which Trump picked up on. And so Trump very explicitly contested this narrative of exceptionalism and this kind of American identity and supplanted it with an sort of what you in the literature would call ethnic nationalism. So white Christian um, American culture that was ex- was def- were defined as the real Americans, excluding quite uh, um, specifically sometimes certain groups such as Muslims. That was sort of the, the original other Uh, That's what he sort of started talking about. And of course, he then went about instituting the so-called Muslim ban. So there was a completely different way of defining the American nation or the American national identity, which meant that in foreign policy, if you take away these ideals and ideas, then there's no longer a mission abroad. What are you fighting for? Not liberal ideas, not uh, freedom of the press around the world, not political civil rights around the world, because all that is gone. your worldview instead you're fighting for material wealth a sort of transactional approach to uh, international politics and you're you're fighting not to sort of gain allies or, or 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 friends or create a sort of network of anything you're just sort of seeing in each situation what can you get from whom and it doesn't matter if you can make enemies out of your allies and and temporary friends out of your enemies it's all about you and what you can get out of it, not about some sort of longer term approach to the world. But so he he revived America first in the ethno nationalist sense and the economic protectionist sense. But he did not revive the non interventionist part of America first because his approach to security policy has been quite aggressive and militarist and unilateral. Uh, he will intervene here and there. He will bomb this and that. So he will. It's not that he withdrew the U S in any way from the world which i think many of his voters uh expected that he would so not a sort of non-interventionist approach just a sort of more randomly aggressive unilateral approach where whatever fit his fancy
1: You're listening to America Explained a podcast about american politics foreign policy and culture for an international audience like it then tell a friend and help us grow Yeah. And it it always struck me if we, that this idea of American exceptionalism is useful for explaining a lot of Trump's domestic actions as well. And it seems that one of the things that made him so dangerous to America's domestic institutions was that he didn't believe in this narrative of exceptionalism. So he had no sense of himself as a steward of America's democratic institutions, you know? So if he was someone who thought that, America's uniqueness and its specialness flows from this democratic tradition and these ideals as every previous president seems to have done. He would have felt some kind of um, need to nurture and protect that legacy going forward and you know, we could also say the same thing about his approach to domestic race relations as well, that, you know, he, he had no affinity. He he had no allegiance to the idea of America as a melting pot, which brought together various races and cultures. And as you say, he leaned really heavily into this idea of basically America is the home of white Christians, although of course he's he's no Christian himself, right? But he, he really um, knew how to deploy Christian imagery to, to reinforce his own power. So, it seems that exceptionalism binds together America as a domestic I- ideology as well as underlying its foreign policy as well.
0: Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> and here, again, I want to be very clear because time and time again, I find that people find the, the subtle difference is difficult. But I want to argue that in a country like the United States, you can only have a national identity based on ideas and ideals. You can't have a national identity based on ethnicity because it is and has been from the beginning a multi-ethnic, multi-religious country. You don't need the the superiority part. It would be much better if the US discarded that layer on top that says we're much better than everyone else and therefore we should A B and C. You can discard all that, but as a as matters of nation building and national cohesion and unity go, you must as a multi-ethnic, multi-not uh, multicultural necessarily multi-religious state, unite in ideals, institutions, and ideas, not in skin color and religion. That is the death of the American Republic, and that is the. Tra- it is a tradition that has been there all along, but it was a tradition that I think many people hopefully thought that maybe finally, with the election of the first black president and his re-election. Perhaps this sort of monster within the American story was finally vanquished. But what Donald Trump did is he revived it. He woke up from the obviously not dead, any, any minority American will tell you not dead tradition, but he elevated it to an official level. And for four years, the White House was the center for right-wing radicalism and ethnic nationalism. And that is the, that is the kryptonite to the American story. That is how the U.S. will wither from within and die.
1: I think that this this really raises the question of America's ideals versus its practices throughout history. No, you know, so I, I could, and in my more cynical moments do, construct an argument where you can basically say that for most of its history, America has not been a democracy. For most of its history, America has not been a true multiracial republic. But this idea of American superiority has All you know, a certain idea of American superiority, at least, has always been based on the idea that it is these things that it hasn't been for for most of its history. And, you know, since the 60s and the civil rights movement, and, you know, then the election of Barack Obama, which which seems to kind of ratify this change, I think that it became much more common to believe that America had finally transcended the reality of most of its history and, and moved closer towards its ideals. But, the election of Trump came as a really kind of ugly reminder that that really hadn't happened so much. And um, just, you know, turning to foreign policy and, and, and th- again, and thinking of a little bit about the future. Another way that I think that this contrast between ideals and practice is interesting to think about is... I think about the all the research that's been done on American public opinion to, towards foreign policy in the post-war era, and we consistently find that the American public has not been as bought into this bipartisan consensus about things like free trade, about things like uh, liberal institutions, as American elites have been. So. If you ask Americans in a you know in an opinion poll, do you think that ideals should guide American foreign policy? Most Americans will say yes. But then if you ask them what actually are your priorities in foreign policy, they'll usually say protecting the homeland, safeguarding American jobs, much more kind of of nationalist or at least not internationalist, not idealistic goals. Uh, Trade's a great example of this, you know. So since World War II, elites have consistently been much more pro-free trade than than the public have. And it seems that what Trump did to an extent was that he came along and he broke this bipartisan duopoly and gave people the option of voting for something different, gave the option of, of voting for something more nationalist. And that leaves me really confused about where we're going to go from here, right? You know, so have we seen a change in the way that the parties are going to view America's mission in the world? Have we seen a change in the public's views? I just wondered if you could reflect on on those issues.
0: Right. So you don't want a situation where a foreign policy elite is taking a country in a direction that the rest of the voters don't agree with. And that is sort of what Obama was working off of in 2008, recognizing that this war on terror was very unpopular, that there were deep, obviously, problems with the American um, political economy, given that he took over in the midst of a financial crisis. <clears throat> so you see that this this old consensus was sort of ready for a discussion and uh, reevaluation. And that's partly why I think even Obama won the nomination from Hillary Clinton, because he, he did represent a more critical approach to U.S. foreign policy than the foreign policy elite of the Democratic Party, of which Hillary Clinton was a perfect representative, right? And in 2016, we, you know lest we forget it was not just Trump it was also Bernie Sanders voicing some of these concerns especially when it comes to political economy and globalization versus american <clears throat> jobs etc shows you that something was really bubbling up when you find it in both parties you there something big is, is happening here so you you could have imagined there's one alternative universe where Obama starts the work. He starts the job of reevaluating some long held assumptions of of U.S. foreign policy. Um, But change is slow and there are important hindrances along the way, such as a financial crisis. But then someone else comes in in 2016 that isn't Trump, that continues the work. And that's a completely different world and more in line with what you're saying than what we got, which was. A sort of drug-induced, feels like psychotic <laughs> <laughs> version of this reevaluation, uh, drawing out the worst in the, out of American history and the worst really Trump really drew out the worst in, in himself, his compatriots, and the world. <laughs> I feel in many ways. And what you see now, apropos public opinion, is that because Trump was such, so extreme, um, you see a sort of increased support in public opinions for U.S. Engage, engagement. But I think, again, what you know, as you very well pointed out, there's a general increase in, yes, the U.S. should be involved in the world because we don't want, whatever Trump is doing, that we don't want that. But if you're going to start asking them about specific policies, and I think especially when it comes to trade and jobs and all these things, you you might still get answers along the line of that a Trump or a Bernie Sanders or someone would be uh, agree with, I think.
1: So we have a new administration now, and they need to um, navigate these challenges. And you mentioned to me the other day that you were writing an op-ed about um, Biden's approach to American narratives after the Trump era. What conclusions did you reach about how his administration might approach this problem?
0: So I think, you know, Biden is, in many ways, uh, the sort of perfect representation of the old Democratic Party of that old foreign policy elite. Um, And so I, this is pure speculation on my part. I do not know Joe Biden, but my sense is that his, were he to choose, were he to get to choose himself, he would have, so his instinct would have been to come in now and simply try to like rewind over the last four years, hope that everyone forgets and get back to the U.S., leading the world and everyone uniting and admiring these exceptional ideals, which is impossible. It will not work. Um, There's already a a debate underway uh, among those of us who who do research on US foreign policy, reevaluating the extent to which the US has been a positive actor in international politics. The debate over how liberal was the liberal world order? How much of an order was it? Is this really something we want to go back to? Maybe not. Um, along with that is the disintegration of the bipartisan consent foreign policy consensus. So the reason Biden can't rewind and press play again is because u s allies such as Norway and the Netherlands can no longer depend on stability from u s administration, so whereas there was no reason for anyone to believe that a U.S. president between 45 and 2016 would suddenly turn around and try to pull the U.S. out of NATO, that has now happened. And you can't undo that, and allies can't unhear that. And since we don't know who's going to be president in 2024 or 2028, as long as there's no new consensus that both parties buy into on what the U.S. should represent in the world and what it should do, there is sort of only instability and chaos, which is why instead of rewinding the tape, Biden needs to buy a new tape and he needs to start a more fresh and more honest discussion about what the U.S. can contribute in the world. And I don't think those old ideas of American superiority will help in that discussion. I think you need a more down to earth discussion about what can the, the dwindling number of liberal democracies that are left in the world, what can we work together to achieve? So it, it in a sense, Biden has entered in a very important moment in American and world history. It's a moment of opportunity where you don't just put the U.S. ship in the reverse. You have to plot out a new course. Yeah, and it's
1: it, it's going to be really interesting to see how the internal debate in the Democratic Party plays out as well, because in a way, Biden assuming the mantle of the party has delayed an an inevitable changing of the guard, right? I mean, he is old. He's like the oldest guy to ever assume the presidency. And, you know, if you look at um, Kamala Harris, his vice president is, is, is 30 years or so younger, different generation. And that generation of Democrats has an approach towards American foreign policy, which I think is also very, very questioning of the idea of superiority and very questioning of many of the, traditional policies that that have gone along with that. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out as well.
0: And I fear, so Biden has, I think, been quite good at positioning himself in the direction in which the party is going. And I think most will recognize, even those who voted for Bernie two times in a row, that Biden's domestic agenda is quite progressive and markedly more so than those Democratic presidents that came before him. The question is to what degree he is ready for the same kind of reorientation in U.S. foreign policy. And that's what I'm really going to follow. And I'm very interested in it. And there's there's some encouraging uh, signs and then there are some disappointing signs. It, it, it's, it would seem, for example, to take a really oldie but goodie that the U.S. approach to Israel-Palestine will continue to be just as useless as, as it has always been. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's got to be better so. than having Jared Kushner doing the peace plan, though.
0: <laughs> well, low bar, Andy. Low <laughs> Yeah, bar. that's
1: true. <laughs> it is going to be... It's it's a very confusing time, you know, in American foreign policy. It's very much in flux, and we feel like, you know, the old order has been destroyed and the, the new one is yet to be constructed. But so, yeah, I, I look forward to talking uh, to you about this more in the future, thanks so much for being so generous with your time and coming on to the show
0: it was so much fun thanks andy
1: that's all we have time for this episode thanks for listening to america explained you can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the america explained facebook page i'm your host andy gawthorpe designer and advisor is janice killian music by soundwave america explained is an apd media production see you next time